Welcome to the Drive Able podcast, where we discuss all things about driving and safer community transport for people with disabilities and medical conditions. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you go back and listen to episodes 17 and 18. In these episodes, we met Peter Simmons and discussed his driving history and what a long driving history it is. Uh, He's had his injury for a few decades now, and in those uh, interviews, we discussed the difference between pre-NDIS and what a difference NDIS has made. We discuss his driving aids, his vehicle, and how he gets in and out of the vehicle with a complete high-level spinal cord injury. In episode 18, Ali and I unpacked this in more detail and talked about the modifications that he's using to drive. Peter blew us away and his story really highlights how NDIS can help. G'day, Ali. G'day, everyone. This is episode 19 and this interview podcast, we have something actually a bit different than we normally do. This time, we're not actually uh, interviewing a person with a disability or a carer. This time we're interviewing a key stakeholder or a key stakeholder in the industry or an expert or a professional in this field. It's an interesting and important interview with a high profile person. Um, I'll say that with a with a little bit of a grain of salt because he is my brother as well. I'll disclose that. <laughs> and um, so we're interviewing uh, Amin, uh, Amin Akbarian, who the reason why we're actually interviewing him um, is not because he's my brother, but because he's actually Australia's representative on the ISO International Standards uh, Committee for Disabled Standards and in particular uh, wheelchair access and um, disability stand uh, restraints and lifts and so on. So basically he has been selected by the Australian uh, committee to represent Australia on the world stage with respect to input and creation of these standards. So he's got a pretty important role because um, he's his input will influence what we do in the future. So it's great that Australia has a voice on that table. Um, and Amin's been working very much in this space for a number of years now, and he's got a lot of um, expertise in these products and, and all their standards. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited to get him on to talk about this. So Brad, are you ready for it? Yeah, mate, let's get this underway and get him on board. Driving is something many take for granted. But when someone has an altered ability, then driving or getting out and about in your own car can be challenging. The Drive Able podcast unpacks the world of driving with a disability so you can experience the freedom that you desire. I'm Brad and with me is Ali and together we have over 30 years of experience in driving and disability. Enough with the intros, let's get into it. Okay, in this episode, we are talking with Amin Akbarian from both Mobility Engineering and um, Australian Standards uh, representative on uh, ME67, which is the working group that he's a part of. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Amin. Uh, Let's kick off first and you can introduce yourself by telling us a little bit about your history, how you came to be in this position and I guess what you're doing in that position as well. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Glad to be here and um, yeah, discuss a little bit around the standards and um, yeah, how it all, a bit about how it works. Um, so my background, um, I started uh, working in this industry approximately 15 years ago, sort of like 2005, four, 2004, five, six. Um, and then uh, I guess, uh, you know, being part of a family business, doing bits and pieces here and there. And then um, I guess slowly developing the disability arm of our, of our company and uh, starting to create some, I guess, 
basic systems and and stuff within the company to to push that forward and then as that sort of went step by step we started to identify where um i guess you know where we need to be uh, in the industry and where the gaps of information might be and then started to progress into you know understanding that hey okay well there's there's therapists and allied health professionals that um are required to make these things work um, in the real world and then started engaging in that community and then okay well there's also specifications and um, legal standards that these things need to comply with started engaging into into those sort of areas um, and then understanding that I guess we always work better as a as a group so trying to then link in with you know other modifiers other installers around the country um, and bit by bit sort of getting to where I am you know you've Fake it till you make it, as they say, um, and uh, and yeah, coming coming as part of the standards committee, um, I shadowed my dad, who's like an engineering certifier, Mori, um, in a couple of uh, the committees he was part of. Um, I guess to be honest, he what he didn't have the he had the technical engineering um, information and experience, but not the product experience. So then I was able to bridge that gap and then shadowing him learned a lot about the engineering specifications um, and people seem to I guess like my <laughs> opinions and then um, uh, one thing led to another and uh, it was yeah Matt Butterworth from Sunrise Medical invited me to join this technical committee which was I think in 2018 um, uh, or the beginning of 2018 and then uh, um, again identified sort of um, the information I had was quite useful being, I guess, being overlapped over a few different spaces. So not just being, I guess, a supplier slash manufacturer, but also working with the end users, working with the therapists, working with the laws and regulations and working with um, uh, the other modifiers in the industry. It sort of put me at a pretty, I guess, advantageous um, uh, position for them. And, and then as uh, Robert Bingham from uh, Royal Perth Hospital was retiring down from the ISO committee. He nominated for me to sort of um, replace him on on that committee. So there's, uh, I guess, two sort of things that, that I'm part of uh, for standards. So it's um, the Peak Body of Standards Australia, and then there's ME67, which is a, a working group within Standards Australia. Um, I'm part of one of those working groups as an independent, and then. For the ISO, um, it's a working group six, which covers the transport standards. Um, so 10542, uh, the seven, I'm go with numbers because there's heaps in my heaps in my head at the moment and I'll probably get some of them wrong. Uh, so it's like the one for wheelchairs used as um, seats inside of motor vehicles, um, as well as the hoist lifts and, and ramp standard as well. So um and then yeah so on that committee i represent um standards australia so it's not wearing like my mobility engineering hat um it's sort of uh representing the country i guess um and trying to represent the country's best interests in that in that group well it's in good hands can i just ask okay. for the people listening to this what does i uh, ios stand for oh sorry you um you cut out Oh, sorry uh, about that. Sorry. What does what does ISO stand for? Do you know? Oh, ISO. Um, so it's the international. It's it's actually funny. It's spelled ISO, but it's it's uh, it's spelled out IOS. 
Um, so it's International Organization for Standardization. Yeah. Um, excellent. So um, what we're going to do is ask you to give us a little bit of it. I've worked with you before. And um, like you said, you, you are out there in the community helping both clients through to mobility installers, through to OTs and therapists as well. I've seen you at the therapist side of it all. I've seen you in the um, mobility side of it all as well. But from a, you're an engaging talker and you really get the therapists hooked in um, because there is so much that we need to consider from the standards point of view. Can you unpack a little bit for us some of those real key standards um, around this area that we should be considering? Yeah. So I thought just before that, I might just go into just quickly to explain um, for everyone what the what the standard is and yeah. how it sort of acts, and then um, then 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 to add the, the standards a bit better, um, just to help sort of understand where they sit and how they can and cannot apply. If that's okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. No cool. Cool. Um, so yeah. So in general, um, so this Australian standards they are ones that we develop our own um, through Standards Australia. Uh, and at times they're adopted uh, potentially from an international standard um, uh, or not, or they might be a modified international standard. What a standard is, I guess, in its definition is a voluntary uh, document that sets out specifications, procedures and guidelines. And then they aim to ensure that all the products, services and systems that are used in the country um, are safe, consistent, and reliable. So it's sort of trying to get everyone on the same page in there. Um, and they cover, as you guys would know, everything from, I guess, how a water bottle is developed to a wheelchair lift. Um, and even around um, the process, for example, for child restraint modification and how the discussion even goes with the, with the client. What standards try their hardest not to meet, not to be, because it's not the position of the standard, is to be prescriptive. Um, so it shouldn't tell someone how to build the product or how to do the system. It's just giving you the backgrounds and specifications that you need to work within. And the reason why it's not prescriptive, I guess, is then to also foster innovation and, um, and you know, different competitive strategies within the market to help keep pushing the, the benchmark higher and higher. And then within that, you've sort of got... I guess here we use three different levels. Um, we've got international standards, regional standards, and then national standards. And depending on where the standard would sit, whether it's sort of tied in with other um, regulations, such as motor vehicle regulations, like a motor vehicle regulation combines everything, regional standards, state to state, um, national standards, and a hell of a lot of international standards as well as ones that we adopt ourselves. Now, a big confusion I find with uh, specifically Australian standards is whether they are legal or not. Um, so in their base, they're not law. Um, they only become law once they're legislated. Um, and for it to be legislated, I guess it needs to be yeah, passed, um, passed through Commonwealth government and uh, then added to a specific um, guideline that applies. So, for example, uh, a good example of one is um, the VSBs. So, you've got the Vehicle Service Bulletins, um, and they're uh, legislative documents, and they cite particular um, disability standards that relate to motor vehicle conversions. So, because they're cited within that 
um, service bulletin, uh, then they must be used and they then become law. Um, another example of where it's, I guess, it's not law, but um, it's being used in that nature is the NDIS. So, for example, the uh, crash testing of wheelchair standard um, is not law. So there's nowhere in the motor vehicle regulations that says that a uh, wheelchair inside of a vehicle needs to be crash tested. So legally you can get a, you know, I guess a $35, $40 wheelchair from Aldi um, and put it in a vehicle, uh, nothing against Aldi by the way, but it's just, just an example, um, and uh, just get one off the, off the shelf, put it in a vehicle, transporting it, no headrest, nothing, and be completely legal um, within the law. Uh, it's a good example, I guess, of NDIS then going a little bit over and beyond. So if you want to be, if you want that product to be provided to you from that funding body, then the NDIS will mandate that it must meet this standard. So that's them, that's a separate body. If you want to work within it, then you must then meet the standard. And what we're finding is typically that's how things happen in Australia. Um, it's various funding bodies and organisations and, you know, working groups like ourselves. We start using the standard and then pushing the information about the safety and the needs of the standards and then the government usually catches up to us not the not the other way around and typically can I, guess, I also you know, yeah. i mean can i i'll just interject one little bit here just to build on before you move on one thing i want to mention also from the engineering um i guess background as well it's interesting when you're saying that these standards are not sitting in the base in the law, but I guess the thing which I wanted to point out to everybody is there is a reason why there's a bunch of people that sit around creating this standard. They're not creating it for nothing. So they are all, all of the standards are legally tied to us in some way. So, so that's where people get, they, they mistake the, the situation because as you said, they might look at this one standard and go and look at this one law and go, oh, well, I don't need to have lap sash seatbelts for my wheelchair occupants because it's not there in that law. And my engineer said, I don't have to have it. But the thing is, is that it's in about five different other laws that you need to have it. And, and, it's, and, and I guess what I tell people is a bunch of people like Amin and 20 other people didn't sit around a table for five years creating standards just so they can be put under it. Like there's a whole reason why we have these standards. They are all legal in some way, shape or form. It's just that um, they're not often, they're not directly legal. They're kind of, they're referred to in different standards and different laws and, and so on. And so that, that's how actually people get caught out um, is they, they don't realize that. And so I, the philosophy, I guess I try to share with people is think about it. Why would a bunch of people sit around and create this whole standard for it to be thrown in the bin? It's, it's, it's yeah. there because it's going to be used and it's supposed to be used. So, so they always have some kind of legal implication and um, it's just may not be right in the limelight, I guess. And the more it's circulated and the more peak bodies know about it, if it even if it's something that says 100% not law, it then sort of becomes law under duty of care. So I guess duty of care become, starts coming in once enough people know what the implications are. So, for example, if 99% of the Australian population did not know the safety implications of a hoist in a vehicle and, uh, and a hoist standard wasn't law... Um, and they're just going going about their day installing these non-standard hoists, then it's sort of not a duty of care issue at that point. But once, well, especially you know, in today's day and age, something like NDIS and these products and modifications have been around for quite a while. So 
it's uh i guess it's it's done with the excuse of oh i didn't know i need to meet that standard i guess you should know if you're in this industry sort of thing that's that's how it um how it should work in in these days um yeah and yeah that's like a little bit i guess um what a standard does um you know the benefits they have is obviously you know it enhances innovation and uh and, and creates a much more safer atmosphere for all of us to interact in society uh, and it makes it a convenient way for everyone to interact in society as well so you know uh, for example the committee that i'm part of it's got um you know doctors therapists manufacturers um people from osroads uh new south wales government other state governments um and there's just people from policy there's people that have are not involved at all in the disability industry as well um and it's pretty good in the way that it works that way because it sort of provides you know for example if you're making a lift standard and everyone in that standard background is lift manufacturing it's probably going to be an extremely prescriptive standard in that case um and you know uh, a lift manufacturer might not know the uh, society implications of something or the doctor's implications of something or, or whatever it may be um so that's sort of yeah background into what a standard is um how it's created is sort of what um ali was just mentioning before and i was just touching on is that uh, various working groups are created and then tied to particular standards um so depending on uh, you know what the area is different working groups will be pulled in um to get those different viewpoints and ideas and um right and then uh the suggestions are then challenge challenged robustly um so you know in a standard meeting framework uh there's no room for oh i don't like that there's got to be a reason of why you don't like that and if you don't bring up a reason then pretty much your viewpoint is put to the side and it's it's not even um not even considered so you need to have a constructive um argument for it to work um and uh and yeah and then as the saying goes that you know there's many ways to skin a cat so throughout this process of the committee we want to make sure that we've gone through as many of those ways as, as possible they are quite big projects and typically reviewed you know they they they're constantly being reviewed by the market and the people that are working within the market but i'd say probably more like a 5 to 10 year span these days of what a standard is um you don't want to be able to write them how long does it take to write and review them i guess yeah so for example this lift standard which is um it's i can't talk about it cuz it's completed it's just about to go out i think it should be released very shortly um that one you know was started probably 2016 2017 um wow. and got got completed during um pretty much during the end of covid last year so it it does take a while um and the reason is well there's multiple reasons everyone that's in the standard is pretty much voluntary um so no, there's there's a select few people that would work uh, full time within the standard more in the administration side of things but everyone else is like people like us so we sort of give our time voluntarily um meet as often as possible but we tend to try and really stick to those guidelines so if we say hey it's going to be done you know july 2020 uh everyone you know it's like when you're in high school you got that assignment due at the last 3 months everyone pulls their <laughs> pulls their sleeves up and just just gets it done um and and i guess the the reason you, yeah you don't want to constantly just be changing standards all the time um sort of like i i compare it to you know policies inside of work you you create a policy and you've used heaps of different stakeholders to create that then 
every time you come up with a hiccup, you don't want to constantly be changing the document because that hiccup could be isolated as well. So you want to wait a little while in the market, get various different aspects of feedback, and then maybe do a review. Um, so standards can be reviewed within. That's why you sort of see you know, the, the dates um, on the standards. Uh, so it might be 09, then one son in 2011, then another one in 2015, but it's the same, same standard. Um, and uh, like, like all committees, there can be disagreements, um, but it needs to be discussed you know, in a respectful way. So to help, I guess the idea is we're not all from the same background. So I guess a general philosophy of life, we do need to take the time to explain things um, not in a patronizing way, but just explaining it from multiple different viewpoints to try and, you know, connect those wires within our brains and get um, get the right answer. Once that's all been done and the committee's nutted it out within each other, um, it then will go to draft. Once it goes to draft, it then goes to public comment. Public comment is then where every single person um, in Australia can then have their say on the standard. Um, and that's open to everyone in the public. So it's not just within the industry. Um, obviously, if you're not within the industry, it's going to be harder to know that it is going for public. So Australia, like, unless you're part of, you know, Standards Australia mailing list or something, you, you probably wouldn't know. Um, so I guess for the people out there that are in the, that are in the industry and want to get involved, you know, um, uh, I advise you yeah, being around the mailing list and around the, the ethos and the environment of Standards Australia, so then you know sort of, what's happening. Uh, as standards get produced, people like myself and other committee members will populate them and spread them out through various um, various groups and mailing lists to ensure, you know, everyone's got it. Public comment can sometimes be quite lengthy. Um, so every comment has to be addressed. Um, so you can't just uh, go that that one's unnecessary. So everything gets discussed within the within the committee again. This last lift and stand one, thankfully, there wasn't heaps of public comments. Um, but even with that one, still, I think there was about three or four post meetings until we then uh, drafted the final draft. There could be thousands of public comments. Um, and if you can imagine thousands of public comments, then the committee might have to meet a lot more, a um, uh, lot, lot shorter in time and just run through them all, run through them all, run through them all. Generally, they seem to mostly be around, you know, the similar sort of subjects. So you try and group them all together and, and address it, address it that way. At, at the time of uh, of recording this, uh, Amin and Ali, uh, the Austro uh, guidelines for for medical conditions is out for uh, public comment. Um, yep. So we're recording this uh, in May, and the uh, guidelines are open for public comment until uh, June 11. So there's a good month there for public comment. Um, and they're about the, the guidelines, the medical standards for doctors and therapists and, and also the Department of Transports um, to, to act upon. So that's another important standard that's out right now, as you, as you mentioned, those public comments. And on yeah, that, on that note, I'll, um, I'll also, I just want to really kind of encourage people to be more engaged in this mm -hmm. element, um, in the comment, in the standards. If you think you've got something to say, try and get yourself onto one of these committees or, or even just putting comments out. Because what I found is people that do that then have a lot more respect and appreciation for those standards and laws. Um, like, for example, uh, Amin knows we've had a recent conversation with somebody who is selling disability restraints or child seats or something like that. 
And um, they were just a salesperson, right? And they saw the barriers to their sale. Uh, they saw these standards as barriers to a sale, right? Um, and it was quite shocking the way they were talking, but many people speak like that because they haven't been actually involved or understand what it, like the purpose, what it is for, um, how it integrates into society, you know, standardizing this stuff, um, you know, it just means that we have better societies. Like we have a more safe, comfortable society for everybody. It's not just, not just like standards for disabled people. It's all the standards that we have that we, um, you know, hold ourselves to account to. And so I think that the more people are involved in that, inadvertently, they will respect and appreciate it more. And because and, they will understand that they're like, for example, this particular person that was having an issue with the standard, I dare say, if uh, this person had the ability to provide their comment into the standard, then they probably wouldn't have an um, issue because they, they've been heard, you know, um, but their issue was kind of like this, all this stuff is BS, you know, the government does this, it might all be a conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, but it's not, it's just that not many people know about it, you know? And so that's why it was good to get, it's good to get Amin on as well to kind of open up the lights of this and get people involved in this. What I like to hear is that, uh, all the comments get listened to and you have yeah. to review each of those comments. So your word, your, your comments do get listened to. And that's, that's really encouraging to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, yeah. A, it's a legally required process. They mm -hmm. have to demonstrate that they've got documentation for every comment, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that part is something that's pushed quite a bit from the standards. Cause again, uh, like anything done in the government, you don't want to work on something for five, six years, put it out and then, suddenly there's all this backlash. Um, oh, why wasn't this considered? Why wasn't that considered and blah, blah, blah. So this then gives, it lubricates that process a lot, um, a lot better. Um, so that there's like a, an open communication between, between all sides. And yeah, 100% what Ali was saying, I guess it's sort of understanding why the standards are there, um, why we need to be safe. You know, I always say this in, in, the, in my education talks, like we, we don't really care about vehicle accidents because they don't happen all the time. Right. So when they usually happen, it's like a little prang or a bump here or someone scratched the side of my car. It's not to say that a big motor vehicle accident, um, a big impact won't happen, but because it's happens so little of the time, we sort of put it, put it into the, into the back of our minds. And then I guess that's sort of what to, how to think of the standards and regulations. It's like that, um, you know, the, the angel in the back sort of doing the work in the background to ensure that when you do get in those vehicles and so on, those big impacts, when they do happen, you don't have to think about it. The vehicle manufacturers have already thought about it. So it's just automatically going to be there with seven airbags and seat belts and, and so on and so forth. And that sort of can, I guess, take us into the, the next section about standards here. So in a lot of industries that are mature, these standards are already adopted and part of the process. Um, and, and we don't have to think about it really too much. When we jump into a motor vehicle, we don't have to think about and look at the seatbelt label to think, it does that meet a standard or not? The disability industry and transport, because it's a bespoke product, it's, you know, vehicles are not designed for people with disabilities. We're designing them to work with people with disabilities. The standards then have to be applied. They're not applied previously. And this is where I guess we um, are working a lot in the background to try and, um, you know, as, as sort of you were saying earlier with the seminars, that's sort of what we're trying to do is educate the people to understand that, hey, we're not there yet. It's up to the disability industry as a community to raise that benchmark and ensure our clients are all safe. 
Um, and uh, and that can be a, a difficult process. Um, uh, you know, it's it's hard to disassociate the supplier and sales side of things from from standards. Um, I try to do that as I guess I try to keep myself as honest as possible. You know, when I'm when I'm in that process. Um, and the way you know, I guess we have uh, gone against something we're selling on multiple occasions um, because it didn't meet the standard. And checking ourselves then to see, okay, well, what are we doing? Where do we want to be in this industry? And how are we going to all work together to really make sure that um, that everyone's safe in a transport point of view? When one it comes, thing, one to, thing yeah. can I just interject here um, just before we go on? I was just thinking of um, Peter Simmons' interview that we did last week. Um, mm -hmm. 50 years ago, when you mm -hmm. became disabled, there was no anything. You just, you just figured it out with a bunch of steel um, on your own and so on. Now, now that we have NDIS, which is only six or seven years old, um, these things are now coming to the, the forefront. So... One of the things which I guess grinds my gears a little bit um, is that this, like, like you said, so for example, using Peter Simmons example, you might look at his hand control that he's had for 50 years. And it actually is probably not Australian standards and not legal. Now you go and tell him that he'll tell you it is because he's had it for 50 years. And this is one of the issues in the disability industry is that it's been a bit of an open, lax industry um, and the suppliers are the same. So, and, and now that NDIS is coming in, government is spending billions of dollars and they don't want to waste their money and, and they're going to hold those dollars to account. And so now it's, a, it's kind of been a bit of a jolt or a shock because suppliers who have been supplying, let's say, lifts for 50 years into Australia, you go and tell them, hey, this lift is wrong, they'll scream black and blue saying it's not because I've been supplying it for quote unquote 50 years. And, and yeah. this is one of the issues that there is particularly like what you said about the cars is a great example because you go to a car dealership and they're not, you're not going to have that question or, or, or um, you know, that, that debate of whether the thing meets the standards or not, because it's already an established thing that people already have those expectations and they've, they had those discussions many, many years ago, you know, but now because this disability thing is new, like people have been disabled for a long time, but with NDIS, this is a new thing in Australia. You know, it's, it's only six, seven years old. So standards are kind of just coming to the limelight. And, and so what you've got to expect is, governments, authorities, police, all of that stuff, they're going to be now cracking down on this. They're going to be asking for standards. So if you didn't do it in the past, doesn't mean it was okay. It just means you were doing it wrong and there was no one really policing it or checking it because there was no NDIS, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's a really interesting thing to kind of um, point out as well. 100%. Yeah, I've got, I've got another comment about that is, is that the different interpretations of the guidelines and standards across state to state. I don't know if you want to make a little bit more comment on that, Amin or Ali, but being yeah. in South Australia is different to being, uh, being different to being in New South Wales, as an example. Yeah. 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 yeah so from, um, I guess from a, from an ISO hat committee member and, and standards Australia member, I'm not allowed to, I guess, speak on how to interpret the standards, but I can sort of um, mention where the issues can arise. So um, as you said, well, state to state. Um, well, interpretation, I guess why I'm not allowed to do it and why it 
it is an issue and probably I think this will be an issue till the end of time is we're all humans and we're, our brains are not linked to each other. Um, so how we've experienced things and grown up and uh, how we read a piece of paper, how we read a sentence, um, the three of us are probably going to get three different meanings out of that, out of the exact same sentence that we read. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where it comes to, I guess, that, uh, that original part I was talking about in how the committee works and it's being able to, you know, in a non-patronizing way, using various different conversation tools to, to figure out what are those, those things that aren't aligning and then slowly get it together and then be able to then, then link it. Um, unfortunately, it, it, is, it is becoming, I think, a little bit better. Um, historically, for example, from a state-to-state -state, uh, legislation perspective, um, as we've seen uh, during COVID, um, people seem to get, I guess, very nationalistic. I thought Australians were, I knew Australians were nationalistic about Australia. Um, I knew it was slightly there from a state-to-state -state perspective, but it really highlighted how much it is um, there during COVID. And then you can then overlap that with how each of the state regulation bodies, even if it's there as a subconscious, it, it comes out, um, you know, if, if, for example, if we approach a state government in, if we go to Tasmania and go, hey, this is how New South Wales does it, um, you know, you should do it this way, then they're going to be like, well, no, we're Tasmania, we're our own thing. Why should we just do it because you guys do it? You shouldn't have started um, so, a sentence that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's that's just, so sh to demonstrate not to use those conversation tools, you know, and it's to approach it from a, a very different way, try and see where they're coming from, understand that there might be state to state historical rifts or whatever it is, um, and then and then be able to to address it. With with the road rules, it's um it's actually pretty interesting because it's a uh, it's it's all exactly the same. <laughs> um, so it's the federal road rules, and then each state interprets the federal road rules and uh so really the the end definition of most of them are, are exactly the same um but it's just the order in which they're written um and and slightly you know one might have might require an exemption for a certain thing the other one might just require a um like when i say exemption one might require a doctor's certificate and you just carry it in the vehicle and you don't need to consult with the state body the other one requires consultation with the state body, state body providing that exemption in writing. So that's sort of the slight differences, but it's it's very important. I guess, you know, when we always get the question, you know, for example, if someone from South Australia, uh, we'll give the New South Wales answer, but, but say, hey, well, you also do need to confirm with your state road authorities because they may possibly see it in a, in a slightly different way. I might be picking um, on the words here, but what, what I've, find between the states because i've worked a lot between the states in terms of certification it's not necessarily their interpretation it's more the way they apply the standards so it's more their their systems that they have in their states um they tend to be you know like they they just tend to have the same interpretation it's all australian rules as i mean said and generally australian standards and, and i find the interpretation they have on it is not that different it's just the way that they do their thing, the way that they do legislation, Application. The way that they apply standards, the way that they register cars, the way that they do that kind of stuff and the way they think then falls into that. And so you might have to be assessed a certain way on the standard, uh, whereas another person is assessed a different way, you know, so, but it's still the same uh, interpretation or outcome or intention of that standard. So that's, that's generally speaking what, what it is. And there is pros and cons to, to that as well. 
Um, obviously, the cons are it can be a bit more clunky when you're going from state to state and so on. Uh, the pros, though, is something I guess that we saw during COVID, right? Like everyone had the ability to sort of, I guess, instead of if there was just one system and it was spread across the whole country, um, we could have done things completely wrong everywhere or it could have been completely right everywhere. But having, I guess, different viewpoints and slightly different ways of doing it helped then the country be able to come up with a, a more nationalised, robust response. Um, and that's sort of a good, I guess, way to explain how the standards um, should are, and are intended to be as well in the background. One thing on the motor vehicle regulations as well. So there are common areas of confusion in our industry that we work in, like the transport, vehicle transport space. Um, the standard, an Australian standard doesn't override a road rule. Um, so, so for example, if there's a Motor Vehicle Standards Act, um, uh, this was historically used, which we've hopefully um, bridged that loophole. But historically, for example, uh, it is always said in the road rules and the Motor Vehicle Standards Act that um, an occupant transporting in a wheelchair in a vehicle must have um, an occupant seatbelt. So, well, it didn't specifically say wheelchair. It said the word occupant inside of the vehicle. So, I, like I like to um, say in a lot of my standard um, talks, and I, I, don't, I don't mean it myself, but the only way to historically not use a proper occupant seatbelt was to not classify that person in the wheelchair as an occupant. So are they saying they're cargo? They're not a human. They don't deserve the same sort of, you know, occupant rights as everyone else does. And people were using the Australian standard because the previous Australian standard didn't specifically prescribe a three-point belt like the vehicle does. So they were going, well, there's no word of wheelchair in there. So wheelchairs are exempt and we can just do whatever we want in our, in our space. It never was the case. It always was illegal for wheelchair occupants inside of the vehicle to not have a lap sash seatbelt once every other occupant did as well. And this is where people do need to be careful that the legislation and acts always supersede a standard. So if the standard's not there yet, then we, and it's, and it's within a legislation and people are hung on a bit of wording that doesn't say the word disability or wheelchair, um, I guess, as I always say, I'd probably question their ethics and why they're trying to do it. It's typically a cost-saving um, measure in that in that scenario um, because they don't want to spend that extra 1500 bucks or tell the client that they have to spend this extra 1500 bucks um, because then it's going to make them not competitive in the in the market and, and what so and, and so on so it is very important to to understand that um, in addition to the costing in addition to the costing I'll also interject a little bit like going back to what I said, when people have also been doing the same thing for 20 years, when yeah, they're challenged true. on that, um, it also, they, like, psychologically, it's going to be very difficult for them to admit they were wrong for 20 years. You know what I mean? Because yeah. then that, that could have a, in their mind, could have legal implications, ethics implications, so many implications. So as a person, I think they might be feeling safer to just say, no, 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 that's not right. You know, um, I've been doing the same thing for 20 years. I haven't put lap sash belts. I haven't put this or I haven't put that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily the best way or the right excuse. It's just that no one was really checking it, but now they are with NDIS, you know, so it's, that's, uh, that's, it's that's 2020, 2021 and everyone's scared of cancel culture. Yeah. yeah. The other thing about that is that, um, well, I, I can talk on behalf of South Australia because that's where I'm located is that, um, at, 
at the signing off level, we don't need to, uh, by the Department of Transport's level, have to have an engineer sign off on um, modifications. Where I believe in New South Wales, Victoria and so forth, you need to have an engineer sign off that the work has been done to a quality standard. And, mm-hmm. and that's, we've, you've got some companies that go above and beyond and do uh, require a signing off certificate by an engineer when they install something that's going to impact on how the car was originally used here in South Australia. And, and we, we applaud those companies um, to actually get that higher level. But it, there's also that um, we cost saving. We're going to do it the, the, e, the, the way that's going to save the most amount of money to the client to be able to get maybe a sale as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, we, unfortunately, that, that is still in the, in the industry. Um, but I, I feel that NDIS is actually having a positive mm-hmm. impact on that because there is a standard level that they're going to approve something for. Uh, they're going to expect a, a level before they approve the money for that. And I think that's, uh, that's actually been really good for the industry. At yeah, the end of the day, as much as I, NDIS I, says that they're, sorry, I was going to say, as much as NDIS says that they are uh, not liable and they've tried to remove the liability, um, I guess from a, from a crowdsourcing question, how, do you think if, if there's a, a wheelchair modification in a vehicle, right, um, and the government funded that wheelchair modification and something drastic happened, it's much easier for the public, the general public, to point at the government um, than to try and point at a specific company or something. The government always has a much larger target on its back. And I'm pretty sure that they have realised that as well. And that's why, for example, because one of the 3696 wheelchair backrest um, standard is not mandatory as a road rule, but NDIS is saying it's mandatory if we supply it and we fund it to you. And if you want to receive it out of our money, then, then you need to you need to make sure it meets the standard. And I think that's something that the NDIS has potentially tried to show that that's not their responsibility. But I'm I'm I would be very surprised if if this wasn't the case in the background in their own sort of you know committees and work working groups. They've identified that hey, if something does go wrong and we've paid for it. Um, it sort of is our responsibility, you know, um, and that's why there's going to be more of these, I guess, you know, assessments and checks and balances within the system. Um, uh, you know, as I always say as well, you know, government doesn't always get everything right and it's up to us to sort of, you know, negotiate to, to make it work. Um, but uh, having extra layers of, uh, of checking and, and expert groups within their organisation to ensure that these things are being caught out and checked on, I, I dare say it's not a, not a bad thing. I think, I think it's very important because the thing is, is that, again, like I put in very, very layman's terms when I speak to people from this industry, um, at the beginning of the NDIS, government was focused on really just trying to get this NDIS thing to work because they rolled it out pretty quickly. But if you think that the government is not going to have an eye on every single cent that they spent then you haven't been living in this country because the you cannot get away from paying the government. You can't get away from it. So, so people thinking that, oh, it's pretty easy and I'm going to get this and I'm just going to push this through and been doing it like this for years and we haven't done it that way. 
you may not have been caught in the last five, six years and so on. And, you know, you've been doing the same thing for 20 years, but if you're not listening and you're not doing these standards, I will guarantee you those guys will come down and they will take their $22 billion back. Um, they won't, they won't, they won't bat an eye. Look at the way the government works. I mean, again, we've, we've spoken about COVID. They've shown their hand on how aggressive they are. We're locked in a big jail here, you know, like not, we're not complaining about it, but the point is, is, is um, if our government needs to be, they get extremely aggressive. And we're seeing now more and more, much more um, stuff on the news, almost on a daily basis, where people that ripping off NDIS are being arrested. They're being, um, you know, held to account. There's like NDIS inspectors dressed like the bloody FBI, you know. Um, so, so, um, so yeah, and 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 it's it's starting to get very serious. So, the reason why I'm highlighting that is not to scare people, but is to they are serious about it. So you as a, as a modifier, as an end user, as an OT, you also need to take it seriously. You need to take all these standards seriously. You need to take these regulations seriously. They're not just a side thought. They are an important part of your job. Yeah. Can I, can I refer this conversation back to something that's maybe a little bit relatable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Over eBay, you can buy a spinner knob for about yeah. $20. Yeah. And you can buy a set of portable hand controls for under a hundred bucks, which um, can we talk about how that's available for purchase, but may not, are, are we driving illegally with those from an Australian standard point of view? Um, and, and can we talk around that type? It's a question that we get yeah. a lot as OTs. Um, you know, maybe people have purchased them by themselves and they want a new set of this or uh, they've been assessed that they need to have a spinner knob. Why can't I just go onto eBay and purchase a 20 buck one from China? So there, in that conversation, I guess, lies where the responsibility is. So, for example, sort of just what we were saying earlier, if I get a hand control prescribed by NDIS and I've used the therapist and used the vehicle modifier and so on, me as the user... I am not liable for any of the dangers or safety acts or whatever happens to that vehicle, as long as I've used it the way that it was prescribed and installed into the vehicle. Um, there's nothing stopping someone from the general public importing their own uh, hand control portable is a good example, um, and just installing it into their own vehicle and using it. It's just very important for that person to understand that if something happens, they're personally liable for that. And for example, they things like insurances might not cover them. So um, if somebody is driving uh, with portable hand controls in New South Wales, where it's where it is illegal to use as per the certification, um, and they haven't been prescribed it, they've done it themselves, and then they've gone and say something. Let's just I'll just use a drastic explanation. Um, they've they've caused the fatality due to their mistake and um, because it was dangerous that they used it. Uh, they're probably going to go to jail for that. Um, there's, there's nothing to get them out of that. The, the insurance is not going to back them up because they're going to be like, well, where'd you get that product from? What standard did it comply with? Is it engineered? Oh, it wasn't engineered. Well, sorry, you know, we, we tried our best. There are certain states, um, like I know Victoria, for example, does not, um, that's why it's this particular type of modification is quite prevalent in Victoria um, because they don't regard hand controls as 
major modifications to the vehicle. And then there's no certification requirement. That's something sort of, you know, I guess we're working on in the background to try and um, try and make that make that happen. Um, but that's, they haven't closed up that loophole. And that's why you'll probably see more and more of it leak into the market. But yeah, in general, it's sort of, you know, if I go and I, uh, I buy a bottle of bleach and I didn't re read the label and I drank that bleach it's my responsibility if whatever happens if i get sick on and, and so on it's also so it's, it's also um it's actually also written in legislation to sort of build on a little bit of what you said um ultimately uh so yes if if people have done followed everything properly um and done everything as per the ndis there is a chain of responsibilities in command but as per road rule regulation, and I guess we're talking about transport here, um, every single road rule typically starts with the words, the driver of the vehicle must ensure that. That's basically the first few words that start with almost every single road rule. So what that means is that within legislation in black and white, there is a legislated liability and the legislated liability, it's not duty of care, it's not assumed, it's not percentage or anything like that it's 100% legislated that the driver of the vehicle once the vehicle is in motion is 100% responsible for the compliance of that vehicle so so if there is anything that is off compliance and there is an accident ultimately it will fall back onto the driver they can scream and shout and they say that person prescribed me this and that person said it's okay etc cetera, etc cetera. but the responsibility in legislation is is with the driver so the driver of the vehicle can't be blind to this stuff. They need to be involved and understanding that they they everything must meet these standards. And that's why it's important. For example, if we're if we're doing something that's non-standards um, or it requires an exemption and so on, that everything is there's everything is written down and the reasons of why. I guess you know, uh, Brad, yourself being I guess a therapist within the NDIS, mm -hmm. you have to justify everything with a with a, a a medical reason and a legal reason as to why something is not going to meet the law because of a b c and d now if you didn't write because a b c and d then the driver is sort of assumed to be blind to that information initially they will be um liable but then when it goes to the court that therapist is going to get um yeah they'll get dragged in as well they'll get dragged in as well and then that's where all those checks and balances need to be um, and then maybe we can just flow now on into like, I guess the, the regulations and stuff that would apply in the transport area. Um, I think it's important for people to, to know about. Um, I guess when I say the word stakeholder, stakeholder is, is anyone that is involved in the process of this prescription. Um, so if they're, I always say in all my talks with the, with the therapists, if the therapist is actually the way, I guess we like to explain it is you've got, um, people like Ali, who's a state nominated engineering certifier. And he certifies the vehicle um, to ensure that it's safe to go on the roads. The therapist is sort of like the state um, authorized or nation authorized certifier of the human. So they need to make sure that that human is then going to be applicable and adaptable to what is being prescribed. I really the only like way that description. That, that is yep. just, uh, I think we should highlight that uh, um, description because a lot of OTs do struggle to, to, to mentalize where they actually fit into it. And from a therapist's point of view, 
I just love that um, description as, um, yeah, where the signing off body of how the person's body functions. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if you understand that, then like, for example, like us from a vehicle certification point of view, we have to go pay $130 to buy the standard. We've got to pay money to um, get different consultations and so on to ensure that what we're doing is then going to meet the legal implications. Um, and I think this is something... And I don't blame the therapist for this. I think it's, as you said, because it's new um, and it's people are, I guess, you know, maybe straight out of uni. When I was straight out of uni, I wasn't thinking about, you know, what regulations should I buy for my for my job? There was somebody else, there was a senior person that, that sort of took care of it. Um, because the NDIS is so big, we've got so many participants and it's so underserviced, they sort of just open the floodgates and it's like, well, you don't need experience, just go and do and learn on the, learn on the job. Um, it's sort of what they they had to do. I know it'll probably get tightened up as we go on. Um, what I'd probably like to see is uh, sort of like the physio, until you can own your own practice or service under yourself, you need to have a certain amount of years working under a senior physio. You need to sign off on a few, few hundred hours or whatever that is. So if that's sort of mandated, then in each area of expertise you want to go, um, it will make this process of what we're discussing a lot easier. But yeah, it's something I always say, yes, if you're doing, if you're a vehicle modifier OT, then you should 100% in your arsenal have um, the lift standard, the driving control standard, um, the the restraint and seatbelt standard, because again, it's the chain of responsibility. We're liable to the New South Wales, as a, sorry, as a vehicle modifier and certifier, we're liable to the state government we work under. The therapist is liable to the NDIS. Um, so, and we've got a bit of responsibility within that, but it ultimately relies on the allied health professional. So it's it's sort of, I guess, to reverse what Ali was saying around the, the, the driver being responsible inside of the vehicle. It's like the OT is ultimately the driver when it comes to the NDIS prescription protest process, and then and they're liable. So then it is their responsibility to at least understand the applicability of these standards, um, and you know, uh, to talk a bit bit off cuff. Uh, I think we're all no one's going hungry during the NDIS, um, so I think people can afford a couple hundred bucks for a few standards. You know, <laughs> well, when you think about what legal costs might be involved uh, if you don't uh, get it quite right. Uh, or you don't consult those standards, uh, $130 might be very well spent. Yeah. I think also culturally, um, culturally people in Australia, because I've just experienced it myself, maybe have an expectation that these things should be free because they're maybe related to the government or something like that. But, but as Amin explained, these are not, um, they are, they're private. They are by, they're created by the private industry professionals and they're volunteers, but there is costs to putting those standards committees together. There's admin people, there's, you know, printing, all of the stuff that gets out there, you know, um, in terms of comments and all that kind of stuff. There's costs that, that goes involved in that. So, um, and, and, it's just, and on that standards, Australia is looking at various different things to make much more publicly accessible. Um, so they are looking at, at that as a potential barrier, um, the cost mainly uh, for the general public. So the professionals working within the industry, the expectation is um, they pay. I guess that's how we get roads and trains and committees and all that sort of stuff. It comes from a tax of some form um, and usually from the businesses, which are, which are the ones earning money 
uh, on behalf of using these standards. Um, the, the end user and the general public, um, there are things that are being discussed to make that a bit more accessible and certain standards may be, um, may be free. Uh, I know before historically, the standards used to be in libraries and you could just go and um, borrow the book. Um, I don't think actually you could take the book out of the library, but you were able to, you know, go and uh, have a look and go through. So I think because of the libraries sort of going, I guess, out of fashion, there are ways that they're thinking to, to, to recreate that. Um, but yeah, so the need to understand them and, and, uh, and know them is, is quite high for everyone within the NDIS process. Um, and highlighting, I guess, the particular ones, you know, for, the, yeah. the let's, let's, let's do that because I'm sure some OTs are listening to this, but even end users as well, the clients, they actually want to know if their OT or, or modifier is actually, they, they might want to review um, because like uh, Ali, Ali said, uh, the, the driver uh, has a responsibility as well. So let's, let's list that. This is, this is vital for people listening. Let's list those. And we might even, uh, if we can, I mean, we might even put a list together and make those available in the show notes. Would you be willing to do yeah. that for us as well? But let's yeah, discuss those now. Fine. Excellent. So, so the one that's the most popular one um, is the 105.42. So it's Australian standard, New Zealand standard, 105.42.1. Um, that was uh, modified in 2015 uh, in Australia and the ISO version came out in 2012. So that standard is technical systems, sorry, technical systems and aids for people with disability and specifically around wheelchair tie down and occupant restraint systems. So within that standard, well, within all standards, what they also list out is the requirements and test methods for all these systems. Um, so the requirements is mostly what, um, so a lot of standards are part one and part two. Part One part will be requirements, the other part more to do with testing. So to clarify, I guess, as a therapist, you probably wouldn't need the testing one because you're not building the product. You would need the requirement one to check to make sure that these products are, are meeting what, what's required. Um, but yeah, they give all the test methods because also the idea of these standards, um, why they're, why we don't just fully always adopt the international standard is that we do want to also foster um, the ability to innovate these products locally. Mm -hmm. So the more we can, I guess, add Australian national requirements within this and slightly modify them, then it can make it a bit more advantageous for someone in Australia to, to develop a product to suit the market. Um, typically though, I guess, looking at it as well from the other point of view, if somebody in Australia is wanting to innovate a product, it is probably better to, unless they're just looking for a very niche market, it's better to meet the international standard as well as the Australian uh, standard requirements if there are others. So then they can make their product viable for international export because I guess that's where you're also going to make the, the big money and, um, and be able to really penetrate the market um, with your product. So yeah, 105.42, that covers, uh, yeah, wheelchair, tie down and occupant restraint systems. Um, just want to highlight occupant restraint systems and not um, confuse it with postural support requirements or, um, or things called head rests. Um, so when we're talking about restraints, we're talking about things that are tested to a very high load to ensure something does not dislodge from its place and does not create a dangerous atmosphere inside of the vehicle at, at, um, at high crash speeds. Um, 
supports and rests. They're there for comfort and medical reasoning, but they are not there for a um, from a from not necessarily from a safety point of view. There can be something that overlaps. There can be a head restraint that is does have postural good postural support, um, but we do need to clarify what a restraint is and what um uh, what what is not in that area. So if you're working in wheelchair access, that's a standard that you would need to really, really um, uh, know off by heart in terms of its requirements. It's also interesting to understand, but not, I guess, use this as a, as a weapon from a certifier, therapist, or end user point of view. Um, standards are not always going to meet every single person's requirements. You know, they want to, they, they sort of try to hit the 95, 95th percentile um, it's never going to meet 100%. Um, and however, if there are parts in the standard that people believe are not caught up with what is now the market, um, then there needs to be discussions and, and things brought back. But that's also why the committee has so many different technical members. So for example, using wheelchair restraints, the Australian standard and the international standard is 85 kilos um, is what the tested surrogate wheelchair is to meet the Australian standard. Um, some companies go over and beyond that. Um, you're now getting 85 kilos though for a transport wheelchair is sort of being out of the money now. You know, it's not it's not really the standard anymore. It's now more probably 130 to 185 around that that mark. It then though begs the question of, and this is more from a certification and vehicle construction point of view, um, can vehicles as a standard, well, standardly, can they even take 150 kilo load in a section of the vehicle that might not have necessarily been fully constructed for cargo? If you've got a cargo van, it's a bit different. But a lot of vehicles, I guess, we work with and we supply, like the um, uh, VW Caddy, like, well, the drop floor conversions. Like the, the drop Kia. floor conversions, yeah, the Kias, the Caddies, the Renaults, like, they're... Um, aftermarket modifications um, with, with those tubs. If they just have those standard tubs they always use, it probably won't meet that 185 kilo requirement. So people in the industry needs to look into that. Like I know uh, a few different um, uh, industry modifiers are beefing up, for example, their floors because they've, they've done a test and realized it's not going to actually pass once we get to like 150 plus kilos. So we have to do more than what we used to do before to be able to withstand that load now inside of the vehicle. Mm. And uh, and vehicles have constraints. Um, you know, I, I, when people ask me, okay, oh, well, why is it like this? You know, why is the, the weight so low? The general population doesn't know that, for example, a seatbelt inside of a vehicle is tested to, I think it's about 75 kilos or so um, for a 75 kilo occupant. Technically, I'm over that. So if I'm in a vehicle, that position is not necessarily safe for me but it may be like it just depends on you know the 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 nature of the accident and you know what what happens most and so on um there was a case a while ago i think there was like a a, a big sort of courier driver um in a in a van and the got into a frontal accident uh everything the seatbelt completely ripped from the vehicle out when that went to court the vehicle manufacturer did not um get um uh, persecuted because the vehicle fully met the standards and there sort of wasn't if they wanted a vehicle to 
I guess, be aerodynamic, fit on the roads and, you know, meet all of our requirements, but also be able to take like a 200 kilo occupant, you're literally going to have, you know, World War II tanks on the streets. Um, so, so we do have to be a bit respective of what people really do actually, um, what people can and can't live with, you know, in the market. Um, rearward facing is another, you know, great example. Rearward facing is the safest way to see, sit. As humans, we're a bit spoilt, so we go, you know, we got a bit of motion sickness or whatnot. I want to say sit frontwards facing. Um, so we we compromise a little bit on the safety to be comfortable, um, and that's what humans have always done. So it's also important to, I guess, understand that mechanism and that aspect when it comes to this whole framework, because um, at the end of the day, we are dealing with um, with us, and we're all uh, <laughs> we're all very specially different. We also um, can't live our whole lives in cotton balls. That's unrealistic either. So that's that's, that's exactly. the truth, you know. So it's um, you do have to interact with the rest of the society. So, um, so maybe yeah. maybe I'll, I'll, because, just um, off, I'll just quickly rattle off the other standard yeah. names, and then we can just include it into the into the other yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, quickly, there's also the the one which I was working on with the committee. So the new version will be out soon. Um, it's Australian Standard 3856, um, parts one and two. So the previous version is 1998. Um, as you can imagine, 98 was quite a long time ago. So that one was definitely up for renewal. Um, so that'll be 2020, 2021 version. Um, as I said, once that get, does get released and it's official, we'll sort of spread it through our list and everything just to make sure the public is aware. There is... Uh, what, was that one for? what was that one for? Oh, sorry, hoists and ramps for people with disabilities. Um, interestingly, that one will also start to include um, uh, swivel seats and person lifters. Um, historically, there was no uh, standard that covered them. Um, and when we went through the previous definitions, we saw it, it, it tied in actually quite well. So, um, so that'd be a good, uh, a good addition to the, to the industry to sort of lift that benchmark. Excellent. Um, there is Australian standard, New Zealand standard 4370. Um, last version of that was 2013. That is for restraint of children with disabilities or medical conditions in motor vehicles. So that's more um, when we're dealing with, uh, well, that standard, I guess, actually, it can be used also for adults and it does get, get used for adults because it's got a really good um process of elimination to go through with the therapist and with the client, um, especially from a behavioral aspect and sort of how we, how we flowing through this scenario. Um, I think that's a, it's, it's, it's a good flow chart to be honest, to be used for any um, decision-making, um, but it works very well for the, for the child restraints and sort of under, under 12 year olds. And then lastly is um, Australian Center 3954. Um, that was recently updated, uh, 2019, and that's motor vehicle driver controls. Um, so adaptive systems for people with disabilities. That one as well, 100% uh, needed to be updated. There was, yeah. uh, including ourselves, a lot of products being brought in that were more on the high-end electronic side, but were not really covered within um, uh, within the previous standards. Uh, and... Uh, and, and yeah, so then that, that sort of came out, got, uh, got updated. Um, so now it sort of future proofs that for a little while um, until I guess autonomous driving and the, and the rest of the, the mix comes on. But yeah, that's a bit of an overview of, I guess I wanted to say yeah, how, what a standard is, 
how it's sort of developed, who should know about it, um, what's specific for transport. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think it's been good to sort of discuss that all out and get all the, the various aspects of that. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I think, um, I mean, we're going for an hour or so now, so maybe it's a good time to kind of wrap it up. Um, it's been a good discussion. I'm sure we could keep discussing it as well. So yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, all, we're all passionate about this stuff, particularly with the safety side of things. Um, yeah. yeah. There's so, so yeah, much but, more to discuss, I think. We might even get you back on if uh, people have got comments in regards to this um, okay. and if you've got some specific questions. Would you be happy to come back on at some stage? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I dare say maybe we could even do some focused episodes because we've got yeah. Like I know Amin is continually and same with myself being contacted by very, very concerned and nervous uh, therapists mm. that are working in NDIS. And as I said before, um, or even as Amin highlighted, nobody's have really even gone and told them, hey, you're responsible for this stuff. You're the person signing off on the person um, and you need to have these standards, you know, and you need to own this stuff. And no one's really actually told them anything like that, you know, and they're sort of wading this kind of muddy water and finding things out left, right and center when it might be too late, funding might be in or whatever. So, it, and we're just finding a lot of people reaching us, reaching out to us, particularly from the OT side of things going, hey, we've been caught out here or we're stuck or getting into a bit of trouble please help us so yeah, yeah i think it'll, it'll be worthwhile talking a bit more focused about various things as well so let's let's put that out there to the listeners listeners if you're if you would especially the ot's that are out there but anyone else as well if you'd like us to break down specific standards uh, and go into them in a bit more detail um, let us know in the comments down below and um, say yes, please, in regards to which standard you'd actually like to unpack in a bit more detail. And the ones that get the more comments, we'll do those first and, and unpack them again with a minute at a later date. That is awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on. All right. Excellent. Well, we've got, well, we've got to wind up with the, your, oh, yeah. the special yeah. question, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah uh, just because you're not a, uh, a person with a disability, uh, you don't escape this final question. Yeah. <laughs> so what we ask everybody that comes on and does an interview, and, and Ali's answered it, and I've answered it as well, what's mm-hmm. something, uh, you know, cars are more uh, than getting from A to B. So what's something yeah. that you've done in your car that uh, is maybe something a little bit unique? Um, it can be something from a game to an adventure that you took uh, that nobody else knows about. Um. I think it's sort of you. Well, one one thing is using a vehicle as a as a bottle opener. You know, when we uh, haven't been able to find the find the right tools, you know, there's always somewhere on the vehicle that can uh, that can work for that. Especially if you're you're stuck in the bush on a camping adventure. Okay, we need um, tips for that one. I, I need a tip for that one. Where, I've never where, heard of that one. Where where's the best place on the car uh-huh. to use as a bottle opener? I might get sued by a vehicle by a manufacturer if I if I have <laughs> <laughs> got standards uh, to live by. Is that right? Tobar is not a not a bad one, yeah. but um, but to it might be a little bit boring and oversaid, but um, but I guess for me, what I like to use the vehicle as um, and what I think it's a great tool for myself is um, this escapism. So once you know, I, I like so I like driving in a vehicle or things like snowboarding um, or motorbike riding because once you're doing something like that all of your concentration can only really be on on what you're doing and that's driving so um, you're then able to escape let go um, and my rules is always driver picks the music 
uh, and controls the music. So, uh, okay. so I, I, uh, I also really love to listen to music. So that um, really gives me a place to, uh, yeah, explore, explore my passions and, uh, and clear my mind of um, any negativity that I might have picked up along the way. My kids would not like that rule at all. Just so you know, <laughs> they, I, there would be uh, anarchy in our car if I chose the yeah. music. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, mate. Well, actually, that, that's, that's really good. One final thing I'll say before we do uh, highlight is that escapism point. A um, couple of people have mentioned that as well. And it is something that the disability community um, yeah. benefits from when they're in a car, you know, like you in a lot of cars, particularly um, some of the ones with the more sort of discrete modifications like hand controls and stuff, um, you know, I think it was even uh, Nick was saying, you know, when he's in the car, sort of doesn't feel like a disabled person. You know what I mean? Like he's like one of the people, you know, he's just in a car like everybody else, you know, and and that is a thing that I like to highlight for this industry. Again, I guess to encourage people to go get those trials, you know, um, and, and get out there and get in the car. They're standards, you're going to be safe, you know, so yeah. Oh, that's a good way to wrap it up. So as we say in every episode, if you've got any queries about what you can do and what will work for you, make sure you get in contact with your local OT or your mobility dealer. Ask if they have referred to the standards uh, when they're prescribing something for you. Um, But those trials, they really do put you in the driver's seat. And um, until next episode, thank you very much, Amin, for joining us. And maybe again in the future. And Ali, uh, good to see you again, and yeah. uh, thanks very much. Sounds good. good. See ya. Yeah, All see right. Ya. See ya. I'm just... Thanks for listening to the Drive Able podcast with Brad Williams and Ali Akbarian. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate, and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability, or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes, or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.